This week on the podcast, episode number 146, talking to the founder of a leading volunteer management tool. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm thrilled today's guest is a very old friend of mine. I've known you for for quite some time, off and off through off and on through yeah. many different iterations of pieces and I'm excited because Amanda Rose, the founder and CEO of timecounts.org, is where you find it, uh, yep. is here with us to talk about her uh, her current venture and kind of how you got there. So why don't you give us the overview, Amanda? Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to be in San Francisco as well with you. So that's that's great. Um, the overview, well, where to start? I founded Time Counts a couple of years ago. and. Prior to Time Counts, I actually had been working on global campaigns. Some of you, I don't know how far back you go on Twitter if you're listening to this, but um, some of you may have heard of Twestival. Uh, back in 2009, I coordinated uh, a global event series, basically mobilizing volunteers using Twitter. And the first one was for Charity Water. Uh, it happened on a single day, and we raised a couple thousand dollars, couple hundred thousand dollars for Charity Water. And this was when they were relatively unknown. And it was kind of the good golden times of Twitter, I think. Um, but that was did a, something happen? <laughs> Wait a minute! I just passed out for a decade. Well, you know, fail well is no longer our problem with Twitter. I think uh, I think we kind of know some some challenges. But back then, it was a really interesting time, and I sort of was able to capitalize on the fact that. A lot of people wanted to be engaged, meet each other offline, get more involved, and Twitter was the perfect tool for that. So that is sort of, I guess, how I got known and how I became a little bit more engaged in the social impact sector and social good and working with nonprofits. Um, before I started Time Counts, I was actually working on a campaign for Jamie Oliver, the celebrity chef, or uh, he does a lot of philanthropic work, obviously with children and getting them to eat healthy. And they came to me and said, we would really love to build a campaign similar to what you did with Twestival, but getting people to look at real food and taking action. So I spent a number of months working with them and we built what's called Food Revolution Day. It ended up running for about five years um, from the time I, I sort of, I guess, started it in 2012. Yeah, spring of 2012, the first one happened. And it was exciting. I forget how many cities, but I think it was around 1,500 cities worldwide. So sort of took my international scope and my reach, and I was able to do that with sort of a different uh, mechanism. And I guess what happened out of that, it was I had been organizing for so long, but here I was at the time I was living in San Francisco again, I had access to the best technology out there. And I knew the founders of most companies could build what I want. I had a budget and I'm still using Google docs to manage thousands of volunteers around the world. And it sort of clicked with me. Like, why isn't there a better way, a more modern way to organize people generally that want to help? A lot of the solutions I found out there, you know, were legacy, what I like to call them. They're really old, complicated. They take a long time to get to figure out how to work. And what I really wanted was something where I could use something like Wufu or 
where now we use Typeform, <laughs> like a really beautiful form builder and kind of mix and match with different opportunities and have a database and create that. And I just didn't see something that existed. Um, so I decided to take my non-technologist self and try and build a company. And so that's what I've been working on the last few years. Last few years of work and solving a problem that you have in your backyard that then also applies to a generalized market is, I think, a lot of startups have this initial entry point and they're like, I got it. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what the market needs. All I have to build, all I will need to do here is build it (laughs) and they will come running, not walking, wallets open, not closed, ready to buy. And so obviously that's the story we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, building a startup is hard (laughs) for anybody. But, you know, I will say that building something new, especially, you know, being a woman in tech, which I think is important to address, but also, um, and I didn't think about that at the time, because I, you know, here I had come off these campaigns, people were calling me, wanting everything, you know, to connect with me and do everything. But I think you do have to have that sort of blind optimism that, it's going to work, it's going to exist. And then you have to make sure that you're building something that you want to do for 10 or more years because it, you know, not everything's going to be Facebook and be crazy and drive, you know, overnight. Um, but if you're lucky, you can start to step into those pockets of growth. Um, but there's so many things that have to line up in order for that to happen. I'm so glad that you sort of set that expectation out there and, you know, we're sitting in San Francisco, a couple stones throw from many of these overnight successes and you're like, so tired of hearing, you know, we just like worked really hard for three months. Of, yeah. I mean, you know, it was like maybe like our fourth month and like yeah. finally we got traction and then yeah. we uh, sold to Facebook. You're like, yeah. that's yeah. not how it happens. And that's also an aqua hire, usually, <laughs> if we're going to be honest. They're usually hiring the talent in those cases, but not always. Um, and so I want to come back to your story here, mm-hmm. a couple threads that I want to pull on, but it wasn't an overnight success. You didn't turn on the lights and thousands of people came. And like many of us realize, as soon as your you know, phones stop ringing and you start ringing them and fewer people pick up when you have something to sell and it changes the relationship, and uh, that's when you really find out what matters to the market. Can you give us uh, a a brief narrative actually of, you know, what getting going really looked like for you? Wow. Um, So if I go back when I first basically told the government I was founding a company and registering time counts and getting a lawyer and to do all that kind of official stuff starting, I was on my own. Um, What I started doing was building an initial MVP and an MVP in sort of the startup world is like a minimum viable product. And we like to do that because it sort of tests the market, makes sure that the concept of what you're trying to do is something that people are gonna pay for, be a part of. And so I used my own money, stuff that I had earned of working, and I built an MVP. I moved to Poland and Krakow. Um, And I was working with friends of mine who were building really big technology companies and they helped me um, basically build an MVP. But that first year was really hard because I knew being a non-technical founder, which means that I don't code and the amount of, you know, hindsight, maybe I should have just started coding. (laughs) In some cases it would have made my life easier, but 
uh, I knew that in order for me to raise investment and take the product where I knew it deserved to go, I had to find technical co-founders. And that was not an easy feat. And I don't think it is for anyone um, because you're really looking for people that are gonna be part of essentially a marriage, like a company that is a partnership where you're aligned and you share sim similar goals. Um, it took me quite a while. I ended up uh, reconnecting with some friends in London who, funny enough, had volunteered on Twestival. They did a, a sort of hacking project during Twestival back in the day. And we um, uh, reconnected. I told them the mission and vision, and they said, we're on board. So we drew up the, you know, the contracts for them to join as an equity partner, and we started work. And we thought, this is great. They had previously gone through Y Combinator, which in this world is a really good signal to investors and extremely talented technologists. But it wasn't for another year until we raised investment. We eventually raised money from a very uh, significant VC in London, in the UK, called Connect Ventures. And they have been extremely supportive. Unfortunately, the money that we used, we basically spent building the product. And by the time our runway was out, we had amazing customers. No one was really paying yet because we didn't have the features that sort of, you know, valuable enough for them to sort of tick over and say, yes, I'm ready to pay for this. But we knew we were on to something. Uh, I decided to keep the company going. And, you know, to be fully transparent, I could have sold at this point. I had a lot of people, um, because building a product like this is not like building a simple Instagram photo product. It has a lot of different components. There are players in the space already, although we're differentiating ourselves. And it took a long time and we're still building it. We're still building out features today. I decided to part ways with my co-founders amicably. They're still involved in the business in an advisory capacity, but I moved it back to Toronto, had to find a new CTO, uh, put money into the business and grow it to a point where we actually started to generate revenue. And that was probably leading us up to about 18 months ago. Yeah, I think it's, first off, wonderful. Thank you for <laughs> being transparent. I think for anyone listening, looking to start something, looking to start something, either a nonprofit or for-profit, entering into the social impact space, this type of truth talk and this is more representative of what emotionally physically you should be ready for this type of you know real grind and it's not just a, an up and to the right trend where you know everything sort of just came together for me and then i sold for uh you know my unicorn valuation uh i'm curious why you chose a for-profit entity versus a non-profit entity if frankly all of your customers were going to be non-profits I mean, I think uh, one flexibility, being able to have a lot more choice and not being confined. There's there are a lot of restrictions if you become a nonprofit. I don't, um, and to be honest, I think there is a massive opportunity, a massive business opportunity. And if I'm going to put this much energy and time into it, I think a business can do both good and be extremely financially successful. And I wouldn't have started this business if I didn't think it was a business. And um, I think you have to be honest about that. Yeah, I always get a laugh out of the idea that nonprofit as a sector doesn't make sense and that there's no business opportunities <laughs> in it. I mean, 
by the numbers, it continues to grow uh, regardless of recession. We're talking about 1.7 million thereabouts registered nonprofits, on top of which representing about 10% of our labor force. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's going to continue to grow uh, for many reasons. And, you know, I'm I'm biased, obviously, but, you know, (laughs) it is a great market to be in, although it can be slower. Can we go to actually maybe what happened it seems like 18, nine months ago where mm-hmm. you went from a small number of users and then you were telling me in the, the sort of pre-roll that you've actually had a decent amount of growth. And yeah. can you talk about what that that shift was? Because it seems like you had the same raw materials, but all of a sudden something clicked. Yes and no. So a lot of it has to do with the product. Uh, obviously, most of it has to do with the product, in fact, and also the team. So for us, Time Counts is a big product. I think anybody who signs up and you can get started for free can see very quickly that there's a lot of things that you can do with Time Counts. You can create opportunities, create forms, have your database, build a volunteer portal, and you can't build those things overnight. And they also have to make sure that they're achieving goals for people. If you're keeping track of your volunteer hours, which are probably one of the most critical aspects of why you would use a dedicated volunteer solution, is you're gonna want reporting. And we did not actually have reporting until 18 months ago. We did not have the fully fleshed out reporting. So you could keep track of the hours, you could do that, but we weren't really living up to the expectation that I wanted for the business, which was to provide insights and allow you to dive deeper into the numbers and not just get like a total. So uh, I invested in the product and making sure that we had the right mix of features to check all the boxes for somebody that's looking for a dedicated, for somebody that's looking for a dedicated volunteer management solution. And um, I guess the other thing is for me, it took a long time as well. I am very patient and persistent because I know how big the opportunity is. I found the right CTO. And that took about a year from the point of moving back to Toronto and rebuilding the company and looking at how to build it. And Aaron joined just over a year ago. And that's really the tipping point. We switched over to a different model, which was much more transparent. A lot of products in the sector that have to do with contacts, so like a database or in basically all of our competition in our space for the most part, they seem to price it by contact size. And when you're building something, you always want to test your pricing, especially if you're building a SaaS solution like we are. What is a SaaS solution? A software as a service. And it basically means that you're purchasing a subscription, whether that's a monthly or an annual annual subscription to a product and a service. So you can tap into it. And so for us, looking at pricing and for any company, it's critical. And we had launched previously with pricing that sort of started at $29 a month, which is kind of typical for a SaaS product. You usually hear that number $29 a month. But then it would move upwards, not really based on value, but based on contact size. Mm-hmm. And I very soon realized that there was a huge disconnect between you know, a company or an organization that has a lot of volunteers doesn't necessarily dictate how much their budget is or how involved they are. 
And I should have realized this actually, because here I was working on campaigns that I was a volunteer coordinator. You'd have gone broke. Yeah. The amount of volunteers you were. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't want to pay per contact. You don't, you know, you start to do that. So I think that's another thing that changed. We really looked at the pricing and started having very clear, transparent packages. And we switched over to a freemium model, which naturally what nonprofit doesn't like to get started for free. And our philosophy is that you will come in, we want you to use it on a regular basis. We want you to get value. So the free plan isn't some token free plan. It is everything. Works. We used to charge $29 for it. Mm -hmm. But if you need reporting, you need to have uh, more administrators because you have a larger team, which does dictate uh, a bigger team and more of a budget potentially. Um, if you want to get more value saving time, then you upgrade and our it starts at $40 a month if you're gonna pay annually. So it's still very, very affordable and the pricing is clear and transparent. And I think that speaks to nonprofits in a lot better way. It's also flexible. We work with a lot of festivals, which I say nonprofits, but we work with so many different types of organizations. And one of the largest growing for us because they love to have those sort of beautiful experience like an Eventbrite, which we kind of fall in that realm of being able to have a great volunteer experience. Festivals love us right now, which is, I didn't really think about that, but initially, and they come in and they're not using us all year round, but they come for three to five months and then they downgrade and then they upgrade the next year. And so we love those kind of customers because many people that are organizing, that used to be me. I was always managing multiple things throughout the year and now I can manage all of them with one account at the same time. So it makes it a lot easier. Um, so this is a story really of not just, you know, the, the magical feature, cause there's different narratives, right? <clears throat> there's the magical feature, or suddenly we figured out our marketing because we productized it in a way that people could understand, mm -hmm. or we figured out the search engine optimization, or we, you know, yeah. it seems to be a confluence of pieces, but mainly the adjustment and focus on pricing, testing it against the audience, yeah. moving that freemium, and then, you know, it doesn't always work this way, but the killer feature. You came up with the feature that really was the the make or break, that solved the pain point. And uh, I don't know if you can share how many customers you have now, but. It is a thriving platform, I can say. <laughs> well, what I can say is we've grown, we're adding about 75 to 100 organizations a week right now. Yeah. So um, we've got a, well, a couple thousand organizations at this point with 90% of them in the last year alone. So it's, yeah, it's been a little crazy and it's been kind of testing us. There's a lot of things that we want to do and now we've got to turn a lot of our attention to performance mm -hmm. and making sure that we're living up to the speed and expectation and how fast people want to move and you know, people are signing up thousands at a time and <laughs> it's uh, you know, there's never anything boring when you're building a startup. And I think I could probably say that for most people that are building startups. Just when you think you've got one challenge solved, you've got another one. Um, for us though, there was no magic bullet. I think it was just a matter of, and in fact, I don't think we've actually, we haven't had time to tweak. We haven't put any marketing into this. We're able to keep our prices low because people just love us and we'll tell their neighbors or their friends and other organizations. Well, there's a network effect inherently built into the system. And that's yeah. what's beautiful about yeah. something that one organization and then messages out. And then by the way, you have a thousand person volunteer, 1% of those folks have nonprofits, yeah. have events, yeah. volunteer other places. You should use this product. Yep. 
Yeah. And so your marketing is inherently designed here, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think that's why you go with a freemium model. We, there's two reasons why we decided to go freemium. And the biggest one is also because we know in order to get every organization on the planet <laughs> involved, it has to be free because not every nonprofit is going to have a budget. I was there. I may have a budget for one project. I may have no budget for another, but we want people to be doing things on the platform because ultimately who does that help? It helps the volunteer. And our ultimate goal is to get more people volunteering and get more people active. Volunteering is really dropping off, which is so crazy to me because I don't know if it's the Trump effect or, you know, people are just talking about a lot of things and wanting to be engaged with the environment. You're saying and... the national amount of volunteered hours is decreasing? Yeah, it is. I'm pretty sure that's most likely corollary to our employment and unemployment rates, maybe. No? There's a lot of reasons behind that, but they seem to think that it has to do with the uh, it has to do with the number of millennials and just how they're thinking about opportunities and that the ways that they want to volunteer, uh, that seems to be the number one reason or excuse, I guess, for why that's happening. Now, it's not dropping off to a point where it can't be rescued, but it's certainly dropping off to a point where cities are concerned and speaking with them and how they are looking towards getting more people engaged, it's a critical aspect to them. And so I'm having converse, those kind of conversations as well. How can we take our platform and engage more people and keep them involved? And to do that, to get people offline, you do have to use online. There's so many questions that I, I love this conversation because we're also involved in various types of SaaS uh, environments, and it's wonderful to have someone who's openly sharing the, the ups and downs and swings of it. You have you brought up one other thread, and we've had other uh, female co-founders and founders of organizations on before, but can you speak more specifically to the challenges that you think you particularly faced uh, as a woman in tech and in this field? Yeah, the woman in tech is, it's a difficult one because I did not think that there were challenges just because I've never seen myself having those kind of challenges. As as an individual just going out, I think fundraising, uh, not to use that as an excuse because there's so many reasons why fundraising is just generally hard for everyone, unless your name is Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and uh but being a woman, I realized I was in investor meetings. I'll give you an example. I was in investor meetings, early ones. It's not happening as much now. I think people are a little bit more open and aware of themselves. But I would remember doing a pitch and I thought it was going well. They were very excited. And then they would say, you need to talk to my wife. And I didn't really think about it too much, but it kept happening. I would be having these meetings mainly with white men <laughs> in these meetings about investment and I've come prepared, I've got my pitch document, I'm going through our deck and it tends to be, I'm going to talk to my wife about this or you should meet my wife. Now, sometimes it happened because I actually did know their wife. <laughs> so I didn't think about it too much, but it wasn't until I, I was speaking with um, a mentor and they kind of realized and identified for me, Amanda, you're gonna have to work 10 times harder than the man out there who's trying to raise because they immediately see 
you know, potentially their wife or they can't identify with you as much. And I will say things are changing. I'm having a lot more conversations. Investors are, you know, probably because our numbers are looking fantastic now, but yeah, <laughs> that conversation was a little differently. Like. <laughs> but um, I think that, yeah, I, I think I was a little bit oblivious and I don't think that you should if you're a woman out there trying to build a tech startup, it shouldn't hold you back. It certainly shouldn't. And I think there's a lot more opportunities for women now than there ever were before. There's a lot of funds specifically set up for women. I think when I was initially getting started a number of years ago, it was much easier to identify. I think the most important thing is not to use it as a crutch or feel like poor me, but just identify and say, I actually have to approach this possibly in a different way. A lot of people, when they were coming out, they're like, hustle, think of yourself as a guy and get out there. I'm thinking, yikes, I'm a, I'm a Canadian woman. (laughs) Like, I don't know. You know, I, it's, I can, I can prepare. I can channel your inner tech bra. Yeah. I can be confident, but ultimately I have to be myself. And I don't think you should have to change to build your company, but I think you do have to be much more aware that there are stakes against you if you are a woman in tech. I want to ask you now about your expertise in managing volunteers and change your sort of narrative here into, you know, you, you're running a platform that's supporting thousands of nonprofits. You have supported thousands of volunteers. You know, you're identifying this sort of uh, volunteering decay. Talk to me about the, th- you know, three things someone listening right now, the three things you would have them do to uh, enhance and increase their their volunteer program. Maybe they've got a, a sort of seasonal, like, you know, it's Thanksgiving coming up, they're gonna do the rally, come out here, pack a bag, do a thing. What does it look like to, to take that instead of just walking into like a sprint for you? What are those, those three elements that you do to build up a program like that? I think, Thinking about it in three steps is difficult because there's so many different aspects to it. 16 and a half steps. (laughs) I think I was never trained how to be a volunteer manager. And I think that really is key for so many people. A lot of people who are managing volunteers are doing it as part of their job or a side job or something like that. And I really identify with that. There's, there are training courses and things that you can take to learn how to be a volunteer manager, but most people won't take them. And they're just kind of flying blind, which is why we think about that a lot when we're building our product. But if you're starting out and you're looking to build a volunteer program or activate more volunteers, I read that 36% of volunteer managers see volunteer recruitment as the most challenging part of their job and it makes sense because it's hard to get people it's hard to bring them in so i think i would first map it out i know that sounds silly but really 90 percent of what you do is planning so think about how you want to build your volunteer program do you want people to come in via form so you're collecting a lot of information up front do you want to have Um, a day where you bring people and just have an orientation. Really think about what your volunteer program requires as sort of that initial, what we call onboarding stage. And whatever platform, whether you're using time counts or something else, really think about how- Obviously they're using time counts, are you kidding me? I just wanna get people off spreadsheets, but yes, (laughs) please use time counts. We ultimately believe that 
a platform, if it's a good platform for managing volunteers, should become smarter the more that you use it. So you want to collect all of the information. This is kind of the second thing. So once you've sort of thought about what you want to do and plan the onboarding and what process, the second thing is if you aren't if you aren't using a system already, make sure that you collect whatever data you already have. Most people will come to us with volunteers already. You have a list of people that you've previously worked with, whether that's in a MailChimp list or just in a Google Doc, it doesn't really matter. And you wanna put that in a format where you can start to identify who already are my supporters. Because recruitment is so difficult, why go elsewhere when you can already start with a foundation? And we do that in a number of ways, whether you want to tag people, you want to identify different skills so that you can very quickly, easily uh, communicate with them. I think the third part, which a lot of people forget is, and it really depends. I mean, if you have the type of volunteering program where people don't need training and they can just pick up garbage or <laughs> do different things and they can just rock up, it's, it's not going to be as difficult. But retention is a huge aspect when it comes to volunteering. And I think a lot of people don't think about the ramifications of the experience this volunteer is gonna have. It's not only gonna have an impact on your organization, but also other organizations. They say that if somebody has a bad experience volunteering, pretty much 40% of them will never volunteer again. Now, I don't know exactly how they get to those statistics, but I think it- Somewhere in there is the truth, right? Yeah. Just, let's just gut test that, yeah. yeah. That stunk. I showed up. Yeah. Nonprofits are disorganized. They yeah. start clustering it into these macro assumptions. Yeah. Exactly. So I think the third sort of benchmark of a good volunteer program is training and listening and making sure that you're actually communicating and you're not treating the volunteers just like they're there to fill a slot and then they're gone. I think it's really important to remember that volunteers are also potential donors which majority of nonprofits, that's their bread and butter. That's what they need to be doing is um, getting donations and growing their programs and you know investing in what they're doing. And there's no stronger way that they're gonna grow their donations than through volunteers. Cause who's gonna know the program more? 10 times more likely to give. Yeah, and two thirds of that money is actually gonna be uh, going back to the organization they volunteer with, which is the huge part of it. So it, you know, while you don't want to kind of create busybody volunteer programs, you want to make sure that things have value. If I were to create <laughs> a <laughs> I mean, I am so shameless when it comes to trying to get more nonprofits to engage their audience in tangible ways. Uh, so, you know, this idea of like, how do I get more volunteers engaged? But mm -hmm. the problem is mm -hmm. with that strategy, what happened? I could be doing a disservice to the larger community by, you know, not offering the type of experience that is rewarding and fulfilling and also obviously impactful and then uh, obviously not doing the right follow-up potentially. Yeah, exactly. I'm all for group activities and getting people out, especially companies. That's been a huge trend over the last number of years, obviously. That trend is changing. If you talk to companies, very large companies, the trend is more towards skill-based but there is that necessity to engage a larger group of people. And the best way to do that is if you have events, if you're running events or those opportunities, which are a little less intensive, you don't need someone who knows accounting or different things like that. That's the opportunity to really dive deep and drill down. You can also utilize volunteers to support and become 
I guess, kind of coordinators of events. So if you feel like you aren't quite managing, a lot of the people that are using our platform are volunteers themselves. 80% of nonprofits are entirely volunteer They outsource the volunteering to the volunteers? <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a Ponzi scheme. That was me. That was what I was doing. <laughs> but it, you know, it's realistic and it doesn't mean that there's um, there any, like, any less likely to be uh, a great leader or anything like that. And there obviously has to be supervision if you're working with a very defined organization with a mission and that there's an understanding there. But it's exciting to kind of have that balance. and. We think about that, not to talk about time counts the whole time, but we really think about that as a product because with time counts, you can build ongoing schedules, but you can also create opportunity events for orientations. You can create events that could be used for large, large festivals. So it's really- Can we do like thank yous, follow-ups, yeah. triggered yeah. things? But that's how people work. That's how people are actually volunteering and they want things to work. So I really encourage organizations especially if they're coming in and having a conversation and feeling a bit timid is just get started. Start with what you know. So if you're just working with volunteers because you have a gala at Christmas time, start using your volunteers and then build upon that. And hopefully you'll start to learn some insights about what kind of other skills they can offer. When you're coming back to recruiting, because I know that's sort of, I'm going off on a tangent again, but if, if we're talking about recruiting, Another great way to recruit is looking at the friends of the people that are volunteering, friends and family, because if they already have an understanding of your organization, what better way than to kind of bring it in sort of organically like that? A lot of organizations are, depending on the work that they're doing, are reaching out to volunteer centers in their city. They are reaching out to different companies, different ways, different schools. There's different boards. There's a lot of online searchable ways. I have ways. to make a, a shameless plug for Volunteer Match. Yeah, exactly. They're amazing. Yeah, we love Volunteer Match. There's a lot of platforms like that, especially if you're looking locally. Because people, if they do want to search, but nine times out of 10, a lot of people that want to volunteer are going to do it because their friend is volunteering and they're like, Hey, come with yeah. me. Let's do this. Can you give me five of your favorite types of volunteer activities a listener may not have thought of? Like things that people have done on our platform, for example, that I see people designing and doing. I'm just being shameless in terms oh. of like you giving us ideas for different oh. types of volunteering. So like not just like go clean up a beach, but like come in and write a hundred thank you notes, but we'll give you pizza. Yeah. <laughs> um, we are seeing a lot of people, if you're an organization that has a mission where you're trying to create awareness and get the word out, we're seeing a lot of nonprofits building uh, sort of advocacy groups where they're using an LMS or a learning management system, possibly online, where they can start to train them and get them to speak on their behalf. If, especially if you're a small organization, you can only multiply yourself. You can only be in so many places at the same time. So what better way than to train up and get really motivated volunteers to speak on your behalf, go into schools and speak, speak at events and sort of branch out. So that's something that people don't really think about volunteering is actually being an advocate. Mm -hmm. Advocate training. I love yeah. that. Alrighty. Uh, one more quick question. This is just out of curiosity. Yeah. 
I'm guilty. I'm using a spreadsheet. Someone's thinking to themselves, at what point should I stop using this spreadsheet? After 10 volunteers, 50 volunteers, 1,000 volunteers? Like, where's the, like, real, like, you gotta stop this? That's a difficult question because we do have people that have 10 volunteers using us. <laughs> it, I think it really comes down to the individual. I think if you... The most important thing that we offer that saves a volunteer manager time is the scheduling aspect. So if you're at a point where your volunteers will have to select from a schedule, then shift over to a volunteer management system like Time Counts because number one, you can get started for free, we'll help you grow. And actually, it was very funny today. I saw someone left a Facebook comment and they had tagged us today. I wish every nonprofit, and I volunteer with so many, would use applications like Time Counts to, because I just like picking my shifts online and I want to do it online. And I was thinking, it, it, we don't get comments like that very often, but it was clear that she just was so happy to be able to find different opportunities to do online. And so if you are ready to provide your volunteers with a better experience and save yourself some time by letting them pick their own shifts, and you can still set permissions around that if you need to approve them or do different things, but put it online. And then you don't know how quickly you're going to grow. All right. Now we're going to move into our rapid fire round. Please keep your responses to around 30 seconds. I will give you the question. And I will, there's no banter. I won't interrupt you unless you go way too long. Okay. Are this might be hard Are for you... me, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> what is one tech tool or website that you or your organization that it started using in the last year? Oh, uh, we haven't made a lot of changes, but the one that I'm loving right now is called Loom. It L-O-O-M. And we use them to create a lot of videos for our help center, but nonprofits or anyone could use them very quickly if you're creating videos. Talk to me about one tech issue that you are currently battling with. The biggest and one and only technical challenge we have is performance because we're growing so quickly. And it's not something that we're fully prepared for. Uh, it, it's consuming all of our energy, our technical uh, know-how right now. Luckily, there's a lot of solutions out there that we can start to opt into, but that's our biggest by, by a long shot. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? We have been working on a Salesforce integration, so I'm very excited to finally get that out. Uh, it's currently in security review, so the Salesforce integration will allow you to sort of sync your contacts and we'll bring in the volunteer hours into Salesforce. So if you're already on the Salesforce platform, it'll, we'll finally be give, giving you a good volunteer experience. So I'm excited to get that live. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that now shapes the way you do things today. I think the biggest mistake that I've made isn't necessarily a mistake because <laughs> there's so many little mistakes that I've made along the way, but I think the biggest mistake I've made is not trusting my gut when I knew something wasn't right. And ultimately you have to trust the people that you're working with, but I think I will always sort of listen to my spidey senses and make sure that I'm sticking to that. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Absolutely. That should be the goal, ultimately. I shut down Twestival after a couple of years. Some people wanted to keep it going, but I actually did a post-mortem about it uh, for Fortune. They interviewed me, and we were talking about how it ended and how sad it is. And I thought, you know, you should be celebrating the fact that it lived its life and 
served its purpose and did well. If I were to toss you in the hot tub time machine, take you back to the beginning and the founding of Time Counts, uh, what advice would you give yourself? I think if I was going to go back to the beginning of Time Counts, I would learn how to code. I have learned how to code a little bit along the way. Uh, I'm not going to say it's too late now, <laughs> but our product is so complex that it would it would take me a long time to get caught up. And by the time I started coding, um, we were so deep into it. And now I've got to spend my energy elsewhere. But if you're building a technology company, yeah, that would be my number one advice is learn how to code, even if you can't do the whole thing, just have a deeper understanding. What is something that you think you or your organization should stop doing? At Time Counts, we try and listen to all feedback and we take it on board. And I think we do a good job of absorbing it and we listen to everyone, but I think we need to start saying no more. And it doesn't mean that we're gonna be building it, but we are very, we started a few months ago being very transparent about what we are and are not gonna be doing. And so for me, being able to say no and staying in your lane is very important. And that's, that's, I think, what we'll be focusing on now. If I gave you a Harry Potter style wand to wave across the industry, what would it do? It would help organizations talk to each other, share more information, not be so siloed or feel such a sense of competition. And this isn't to mean that people aren't talking to one another. But especially when I was consulting with nonprofits in the early days, it frustrated me so much about how much competition there is for donations and different things. So I would, and I know it doesn't happen magically, although that's the question, but I would love to be able to connect people so that they can hopefully start to serve the purpose and serve people together instead of having so many different organizations. How did you first get started in the social impact sector? Maybe not the sector, but I'll give a throwback. When I was in high school, I was involved in a million clubs and student council and did all of that. And I remember one of the most exciting things I did was I was a face painter and I would work with the Rotary Club and do face painting at their barbecues. And, you know, and I was sort of engaged and I didn't really think about it. I just kind of got involved and did it, not realizing how much of a impact that would have on my life. But that's something I look back and remember. I think that was probably a starting point of always wanting to give back. What advice would you give to college grads currently looking to enter the social impact sector? Hmm, that's a great question. I, I think that I would advise them to volunteer. <laughs> I think you want to be able to get a broad sense of experiences. Part of my advice would be do something outside of the nonprofit sector as well, but I think a lot of that can be gained just by volunteering and really getting a sense of the type of organization because there's so many. The nonprofit sector is so vast and really getting a sense of not only the work you want to be doing, but the mission, the type of approach the organization is going to take. Uh, yeah, that would be my advice. What advice did your parents give you early on in your career that you either now follow or didn't follow? My parents, I think, are the most supportive, but I think ultimately they have seen how much I've suffered for building this company. And so I really have not listened to them when they've said, take the easy route. <laughs> Don't put your money into that. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, I think they're, 
I think they're proud of me ultimately and they're 100% supportive of what I do, but I definitely didn't listen to them because building a startup is not really what your parents did and they would be much happier having me work for someone else, I think. Final hardball question, Amanda. (laughs) How do people find you? How do people help you? Well, if you're looking for me and you're on Twitter, you can find me at I'm Amanda on Twitter. So that's very easy. Uh, If you want to find Time Counts, we are at timecounts, with an S at the end, .org. And I'm sure that'll be listed wherever this is posted and you're listening. And if you need to talk to us, usually if you've signed up, I'm going to be the one you're talking to because I love talking to everyone that comes on customer service. If you have any questions, you can always reach us at support at timecounts.org. I'm very searchable online, so I'd love to hear from you if you've got any questions. And you heard it here. If you have more than 10 volunteers or more than one volunteers, go use Time Counts. Thank you so much for sharing this journey and this advice with us, Amanda. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see you. Good to see you. Thanks. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.